Um, happy Christmas week, okay, December 22nd. I could not be more excited. Uh, I know some of you here are not big fans of the Christmas season, but I'm a huge fan of the Christmas season, so you'll just have to forgive me. Um, I think it is such an incredible time of year where we get to stop and we get to reflect on the incarnation that God did not stay distant from us, but he came down and he took on flesh and he was a born in a manger and we call his name Jesus. And I could not be more excited for our first Christmas Eve service that we have coming up this Tuesday. Okay, so Tuesday, December 24th, right here at 4 p.m., we are going to have a Christmas Eve service. And the reason that we wanted to have this service was because we know that the holiday season is crazy, right? Can we all just admit that the holiday season is crazy? It's supposed to be a time where we reflect and we think and we consider our lives and the big questions. But if you're anything like me, more often it's a time full of hustle and bustle. I was at Costco on Friday. That was a mistake, Okay, Costco on Friday is always a hard time, but especially in the holiday season. So we wanted to create an environment where you and your family could come together and take a deep breath. And for an hour, just contemplate the season, contemplate why we gather, why we give gifts. We're going to have a great time together. It's a family-friendly service, so the kids are going to be in here. My son is going to be reading scripture, so I'm not sure what's going to happen with that. He told me, Dad, did you know I'm preaching at the Christmas Eve service? And I was like, that's great, buddy. I'll have one less thing for me to do this week, you know. Um, but it's going to be a great time. So please make plans to come out and join us. And it's a great opportunity to invite friends of yours, family, member that, family members that are in town. My parents are coming down, um, neighbors. A lot of people who don't usually go to church are open to attending a Christmas Eve service. So a great opportunity for us to just invite our community to come and to hear the good news of the Christmas season, okay? So that's this Tuesday, 4 p.m., in here, the service will last about an hour, and we'll have some hot drinks and some snacks afterwards, just a time to hang out if you want in our kids' area, okay? So make sure you put that on your calendar. Um, if you have a Bible, you can open it up or you can turn it on if you're really cool to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, we're going to be in verses 12 through 42. 12 through 42. So as I mentioned earlier, we are smack dab in the middle of the Christmas season. We are in the belly of the Christmas beast, okay? And how you feel about this season has a lot to do with your circumstance in life. For some of us, we love Christmas because it reminds us of all the blessings that we have. So it reminds us of the loved ones that we have. We get to spend time with them. It gives us an opportunity to think back on the year that was and man, just see all the ways that God has been faithful to us and that he has blessed us. And so we look forward to Christmas. Christmas is sort of like a hilltop for us. It's a time where we rejoice and we reflect. It reminds us of all that we have. But for other people here, Christmas is not a time of rejoicing. Christmas is not a time where you remember all that you have. Christmas is a time that you are forced to remember all that you don't have. Christmas is a time that you remember that you're still single, that you still don't have any children, or that you're still estranged from your family. You see, for some of us, Christmas is a hilltop, but for others of us, Christmas is a valley, reminding us of the pain, reminding us of the disappointment of the past year, and that once again, we've had another Christmas season and things haven't changed. The truth is, our lives are full of both, aren't they? Our lives are full of both hills and valleys, moments where we feel like the sun is shining on us and, man, God is good and he's blessing us and we can trust him, and then times where we're not sure, times when we doubt, times when we're disappointed or we suffer or we're confused or we don't know why something is happening. And if you're here this morning and if you're a follower of Jesus and your goal is like the Apostle Paul, who said he wanted to finish the race, and he wanted to keep the faith all the way to the end. If that's your goal, like it is mine, then we have to figure out, we have to learn how to walk through both. Because the truth is, no matter, no matter how old you are, you know this to be true, your life is full of both hills and valleys. 
it's not hill to hill to hill to hill. It is hill to valley, and sometimes it feels like the valleys overshadow the hills. So if we're going to follow Christ, if we're going to make it to the end, we have to figure out how to do that. And if you're here and you're not sure where you are, you're considering Christianity, I, I want to tell you that Christianity doesn't make your life all sunshine and rainbows. It just doesn't. So we have to figure out how to do this. And the good news is that we're not the first people to have to figure this out. But we actually have an example from the early church of how you walk through both the hills and the valleys of your discipleship. Today we're going to look at a really intense chapter. I mean, there is a lot going on, and we're going to see the church experience hill and then valley and then hill and then valley and then hill, and the, I mean, right in a row. And we're going to learn from them how we can faithfully follow Jesus through the ups and the downs of life. So look at verse 12 with me. It says this, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico, which was one part of the temple in Jerusalem. Now none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, so that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So this is the third time in the book of Acts that Luke, the author of this book, has given us a summary statement of the church, kind of like a snapshot. And this is by far the most impressive snapshot that we have gotten so far. You might notice that God's power has dramatically increased in the life of the early church. Back in Acts chapter 4, Peter healed one man. He healed one paralyzed man, and that was such a remarkable occurrence that it caused a massive stir. And yet we're told in this text that signs and wonders and healings were being performed regularly by all of the apostles. Not just one healing by one guy, but just all over the place people were getting healed. Like the hospitals were emptied out because of the power of God that was at work. And this was so well known that people started to come into Jerusalem from the suburbs. So people started to carry their sick loved ones and friends on cots and mats, and they would carry them into the city because they just wanted to get close to the apostles because that's how palpable the power of God was in their midst. Now, not only that, but the church was growing faster than it had ever grown. Look at verse 14. It says, more than ever, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Now, that is a pretty impressive statement if you consider what we've seen so far in the book of Acts. If you've been with us, you know that we've had some pretty impressive services in the book of Acts so far, right? Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up for the first time, he preaches the gospel, and oh, I don't know, 3,000 people get saved. Acts chapter 4, after Peter heals the man who's been paralyzed and he, a crowd forms, he takes that opportunity to preach the gospel again, and the text tells us that 5,000 people get saved. Right, So at this point, the church is already probably around 10,000 people, and yet Luke says, hey, this is the fastest the church has ever grown. I mean, just multitudes of people are coming to faith in Christ. And it's not just people from Jerusalem. People are starting to come in from the surrounding areas. So this would be like if, man, people started driving here from like Short Pump and Waynesboro and Harrisonburg and D.C., right? They just started because they heard about what God was doing and they wanted to get close to it. And we had to baptize every single Sunday because like 45 people got saved that week, 
right? We just, we just left the thing set up up here, right? Like it was, and it was always cold because the water's always cold when we baptize here. Just kidding. We try not to make it cold, but it's hard, okay? Right? That is what was happening in the early church. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. This will help you understand this whole text. In terms of growth, this is the high point in the early church. In terms of growth, this is the high point in the early church. It is the mountaintop moment for the early Christians. They will never again approach this level of God's power and this, this, uh, per, this, this rapidness in terms of conversions, ever. There's only one other time they even get close, and that's in Acts 19, and that doesn't even really hold a candlestick to this. I mean, this is a massive move of God. If 10% of what happened in this chapter happened in our church today, do you know what they would call it? They'd call it the third great awakening. I mean, that is what is, you have to wrap, don't let just be like, oh yeah, it's a Bible story. This was radical. The whole city of Jerusalem was being turned upside down by the power of God. This was the mountaintop of all mountaintops. This is something that you long to experience in your lifetime. And the truth is, if this is the only picture that we had of the early church, I would find it inspiring but not very helpful. Because the truth is, this is not our experience, is it? Our life is not one mountaintop moment to the next. Our life is a lot of ups and downs. And the truth is the same was true for the church. And we're going to see that in verse 17. But, but, in the midst of all this going on, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. So the religious council that the high priest was a part of was a group of the most powerful leaders in Jerusalem. They had both religious and political authority. They were the culture shapers of their day, and they maintained political power by playing nice with the Romans. You see, the Romans didn't really care what happened in Jerusalem as long as they paid taxes. So they were like, hey, you guys can do whatever you want as long as you make sure your people pay taxes, and rioting is bad for tax revenue, so don't let people riot. If you keep them from rioting and you make people pay taxes, then you can stay in power and we'll give you our military, okay? That's who this council was. They played nice with the Romans. This council was responsible for murdering Jesus. So these were the men, these were the power players that had come up with the conspiracy to have Jesus arrested and crucified. And this group of men is going to become the primary antagonists to the church in Jerusalem. They are going to become the church's greatest opponents. Why? Why are they so upset with the church? Why are they so antagonistic? Well, look at verse 17. They were jealous. They were jealous. More and more people were going to the church services and not to the temple services run by the council members. Less people meant less influence, less giving, and ultimately less power. The council was jealous of the growing influence of the apostles and the threat that it posed to their power. And so they arrested them. And just as a side note, it's pretty remarkable what jealousy can lead us to do. This is a valley moment for the early church. The men that Jesus had appointed to provide stability and direction and wisdom and leadership to this growing movement, the apostles that had walked with Jesus, that knew his teaching, that had been filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, the men that God had used to build this thing are systematically rounded up and thrown in public prison. And here's what the early church knew. The council was not, was not above executing people. I mean, they'd done it to Jesus. There is a very real likelihood that all of the apostles are going to be beheaded. And if that happened, what's going to happen to the rest of the church? 
you have to remember that the early church members didn't have power. They didn't have, they didn't have a government that protected them. So they thought, man, if they arrest those guys, if they arrest the apostles, what, I mean, number one, what, what are we going to do? And number two, are they going to come and get us? I mean, this is a dark valley in the life of the church. You have to feel that. And you have to imagine they started praying. And you have to imagine they started crying out to God and say, God, rescue our leaders. Deliver us from this trial. If they are killed, what is going to happen to us? And then something amazing happens. Verse 19. But during the night, as the apostles are in public prison, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Ha-ha! Ha-ha! How do you like them apples, counsel? Put that in your pipe and smoke it, right? I don't think they smoked then, but anyway, if they did, put it in your pipe, okay? We prayed all night. We were down in this valley. We prayed all night, and then God sent an angel, and he rescued our leaders. Man, that valley was dark. That valley was low, but man, we went to the ground on our knees. We prayed. God intervened supernaturally, and you better believe that we're not going to make it so easy to get our guys next time. Shoot, we'll go underground. We'll go from house to house. We'll spread out in the surrounding region. We'll, we'll come up with a policy where no two apostles can be in the same place at one time. You know, like, you, there's no, you missed your shot, counsel. You may have gotten our guys this time. You're never going to get them again. Man, we are marching out of the valley. That was hard. That was dark. That was a dark night of the soul. But, man, we're back. Verse 20. And the angel said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. I'm sorry. I mean, just think about this. Why even rescue them out? I don't know. Like, why even rescue them out of prison if you're just going to send them right back to the temple? The apostles are like, so you want us to walk back to the temple. You do know that's where the council meets, and that's where all of their guards are, and that's where we just got arrested. And the angel's like, yes, I want you to go back to the temple, and I want you to continue preaching. Verse 21. This is amazing. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. I mean, I don't know why the angel asked them to go back. What's even more amazing is that they did it. They obeyed the angel. They said, okay. So they leave prison, and they walk back, and the temple didn't open until dawn. So I've got this image of them all just, like, standing around the door, you know, at the end. Like, like one guy's, like, drinking his coffee, you know, and they're like, when's this thing open again? The, the guy opens the door, and he's like, you guys are back. And I'm like, yeah. And he walks in, right? And they just go set up shop, and they just go do what they have done for months and months and months. They do the thing that they were arrested for doing, and exactly what you think would happen then happened. Okay? Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel. So they got everybody together. They got all in their intimidating semicircle. And they sent to the prison to have the apostles brought to them for interrogation. But when the officers came to get the apostles, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked, and the guards were standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Verse 24, now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. Right, so the council didn't know what to do. The council is like early in the morning, and they're like, what? Like, so the guards are there, it was locked, but they're not in there. They're like, that's what I'm telling you, there's nobody in there. So I, I'm imagining that they're probably furiously making plans to establish a perimeter at this point. You know what I mean? Like, they're trying to get people out there, like, hey, lock the gates to the city so they can't get out. Like, let's get our guards out there so they can't go anywhere. And in the middle of all this, like, an intern walks in. And the intern's like, hey, guys, I'm really sorry to interrupt. I just thought you might want to know, verse 25, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Like, they're next door. They're, like, in the next room. 
Like that, that's, I mean, it's kind of a ridiculous scenario. Like, you kind of have to wrap your mind around this. These guys are fugitives of the law, and what they did is they walked right back into the police station and started preaching. That's functionally what the apostles did. So, what happens? Well, the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So the captain gets kind of his best guys, and they go. And this time they don't, like, usually they were pretty rough with them, but I think they were a little bit startled by what, by what happened the night before. They were probably like, we might get struck down by lightning if we grab these guys, right? Or this crowd that is, like, growing and growing and growing might riot and stone us to death. So I think their tone was a little bit more like, hey, guys, could you, could you come with us to the council, right? And the apostles were like, sure, we're here anyway. All right, so they, they take them back to the council. Verse 27, and when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. You see, the council, when they really wanted to make an example out of someone, they would allow the high priest to do the questioning. Because the high priest represented the most power, the most influence. He was the most intimidating member of the council. And he was usually very, very astute and very, very aggressive in his questioning. So he is the lead interrogator. And he comes to Peter, and he's not really talking to Peter. He's really talking to the council, making his case about what he thinks they should do. He says, Peter, did we or did we not forbid you last time from teaching in this name? And yet, instead of doing that, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And not only have you filled Jerusalem with teaching that we do not approve of theologically, you are trying to blame us for the death of Jesus, and you're telling everyone that we killed the Messiah. You see, the high priest wasn't really talking to Peter. The high priest was really talking to the council. And he's saying, look, we warned these guys last time, and all they did was increase their teaching, and they're convincing everyone that we're not trustworthy and that we shouldn't be the leaders of this town. See, the high priest is building this case that it's time to take the gloves off, that they tried to be gentle, they tried to warn them, and they got nowhere, so drastic measures are necessary. You see, if you're in this scene, you can feel the tension at this point. You can feel the fist being clinched. You can feel how offended and frustrated these council members are that these 30-something-year-old fishermen from some backwards part of their country have come in and disturbed the status quo and are telling all the people that the council killed the Messiah and is not fit to lead. I mean, there is anger and tension in this moment. Peter can see the rage in the eyes of his accusers, and he knows that his life and the life of his friends is at stake. And knowing that, it is remarkable how he responds. Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Translation, we must obey God rather than you. Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses, eyewitnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Peter basically says, I'm not going to obey, I'm going to obey God. And then he preaches the very gospel that he was arrested for preaching in the middle of the council. So how well do you think that went over? It did not go over well. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Enraged and wanted to kill them. The word used here for enraged is the Greek word diaprio. 
It literally means to be split open in anger. Have you ever been so mad that you just wanted to punch a wall? Right? You've just been so furious that you just wanted to, you just wanted to hurt something. That is how the council feels. This word is only used one other time in the book of Acts to describe the mob that killed Stephen. This word is related to murder. This word is like, I'm so mad, I'm going to kill you. That is how the council feels. Death was a very real likelihood in this moment for the apostles. The council had the motivation, the council had the track record, and the council had the resources. And they could even defend themselves. They could say, look, we warned them the first time. We told them to stop, and they didn't. And so they forced our hand. We had to do this. The the trajectory of the early church, and really by implication, the entire church throughout history, stands on a razor's edge. Like if in this moment, real early on, all 12 apostles get beheaded, it's going to be very, very different for the rest of the world. I mean, there is tension in this scene. And if you've ever been a part of a crowd before that gets all whipped up and all angry, it is very hard to stop emotion when it starts flowing. The momentum, the emotion, everything was moving towards execution. Everything was moving towards death. Peter had done nothing to help. He'd stirred them up. He'd given them a reason. And then the strangest thing happened. Verse 34. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men, the apostles, outside for a little while. Rage is building. Voices are growing louder. The gavel is about to drop when a Pharisee by the name of Gamaliel stood up and got the apostles out of there. Here's what's fascinating. Gamaliel was not a Christian. Gamaliel was a Pharisee. And if you've read anything about Jesus' life, you know that Jesus and the Pharisees did not get along. Jesus and the Pharisees were like enemies of one another. And yet here's Gamaliel standing up to protect the apostles. And what's crazy is he's not just a Pharisee. He is like the Pharisee of Pharisees. He is the big boss. He is the head honcho. It tells us in this text that he was held in honor by all of the people. But what we know from other Jewish histories is that he was a prodigy. I mean, he was literally the most respected religious leader of his generation. One historian said that when he died, the glory of God's law ceased and purity and abstinence died with him. How do you like that? How do you like that for a eulogy? I mean, that is who Gamaliel was. He was a prodigy of his time. He was probably the only man with the clout and the influence to be able to stand up in the council and oppose the high priest. And he did. For whatever reason, God moved this non-Christian, this guy who had a lot of, did not think the apostles were right, did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He thought Jesus was very misled, right? And yet, for whatever reason, God stepped in, and he protected his apostles, and he had Gamaliel stand up and say, guys, put him outside. Take a second. Verse 35, and he, Gamaliel, said to them, men of Israel, he's talking to the council, take care what you're about to do with these men, what you're about to do. See, it was like right there, what you're about to do. For before these days, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. So a few years ago, a guy named Thutis claimed to be from God, claimed to be a prophet from God, and he convinced about 400 people to follow him. He was then captured and beheaded by the Romans. That's how most of these things end. He was captured and beheaded by the Romans, and all of his followers dispersed. Verse 37, after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. 
he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. After Thutis, there was Judas. Okay, that was my, I was so excited to say that in this whole story. After Thutis, there was Judas. All right, the Bible's fun. All right, so Judas was from Galilee, and in AD 6, the Romans ordered a census to be taken because they wanted to be able to tax the population more aggressively. Well, Judas didn't like that, so he recruited a bunch of young guys to join his band of assassins, and they resisted the Romans. Well, he was captured and beheaded by the Romans, and all of his followers dispersed. Verse 38, so this is what Gamaliel kind of concludes. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you won't be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So his basic point is, look, if this is man-made, if this is just like really good communication skills and they're good at community organization and all these things, like it's not going to last. It's going to fizzle out. But if this really is from God, number one, no matter what you do, you're not going to be able to stop it. And number two, if you try to stop it, you are going to be opposing God. That's his argument. And what's amazing is the very next verse. So they took his advice. This council that was furious, splitting open with rage, take the advice of Gamaliel. What a hard right turn. I mean, all the momentum was going towards death, and yet he is able to step in and protect the apostles, and they decide to let him go. Amazing deliverance. Hallelujah. We're making a video about this. We're telling stories about this. Who but God could use a guy like Gamaliel to do his purposes? Only God, right? Like, man, we are marching out of the valley. We're heading back up into the hilltop. Man, that was really, really scary, but man, we're good. Where are we? Continues. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. You see, that word beat in your Bible is the word for flogging. Each apostle likely received 39 lashes on their chest and on their back with a leather whip that would have pieces of bone and pieces of rock embedded into it. Flogging was the punishment that Jesus received before he was crucified that was so brutal that he could no longer carry his cross. Oftentimes, people that were flogged would die in the midst of the beating or would die soon afterwards for loss of blood. You see, the council took Gamaliel's advice, but the rage was still there. So they said, okay, we'll let him go, but not before we teach him a lesson. And they had every apostle stripped down and beaten to within an inch of their life. And as the apostles are are hobbled in their own blood, and they probably have things dislocated, and they're gasping for breath. The high priest stands up again and says, do not speak in the name of Jesus anymore and get out of my council. That's what happened. Verse 41. This is amazing. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. They were beaten, they were whipped to within an inch of their life, and they walked out rejoicing that they got to participate in suffering like Jesus did. And then they just kept going. I mean, they hobbled home. I mean, their family had to receive it. Oh, my goodness. You know, like Peter was married. He had kids, the whole thing. 
God, you know, they're trying to you know, mend their wounds. They probably couldn't preach for a while because they couldn't even speak, but then they get right back out there, right back into the temple. I mean, that's bold, right back into the temple, house to house, and they just keep preaching and teaching. Man, what a chapter, right? What a chapter full of hills and valleys. The church is thriving and growing like never before. Hill, the apostles are thrown in jail. Valley, an angel rescues them in the middle of the night. Hill, the apostles are arrested again. Valley. Gamaliel saves the apostles from certain death. Hill. The apostles are flogged to within inches of their life. Valley. They keep preaching the gospel. Hill. I mean, in one chapter, we see an enormous up and down of circumstances. And honestly, you probably haven't, you probably never will face these kind of circumstances. You probably won't face these exact hills and valleys. But like I said before, we all will face hills and valleys of some sort. And so what are we supposed to learn? What does Luke want us to learn about walking through hills and valleys from the early church, from the church that did it successfully? I think there's three things. So if you're taking notes, here's the first one. Number one, hilltops, hills require humility. Hills require humility. In verses 12 through 16, God's power was so present, was so evident, that people from all over the region were just trying to get close to the apostles. Verse 15 tells us that people were just trying to get close to Peter's shadow, right? Like, you know, I give people advice all the time, but none of you are, like, following me around trying to get in my shadow, right? I mean, this was a massive move of God. It wasn't just within Jerusalem, but people from all over the region were coming to the city to see the apostles. And it was clear that Peter was the leader, right? We're talking at least 15,000 people are a part of the church at this point, maybe more, And Peter was the undisputed kind of lead pastor, if you will, of the early church. And remember, Peter's only like in his 30s. He's not all that old at this point. So in a very real way, he was the first young celebrity pastor. Peter was the first young celebrity pastor. And if you know anything about young celebrity pastors, or really celebrity pastors in general, it usually does not end well. Okay, celebrity pastors usually do not end well. I have a book at home that's called Dangerous Calling. Okay, it's called Dangerous Calling in which the author argues that being a pastor is really dangerous because every week you stand in front of people and you speak on behalf of God. And so it's really easy, especially if you're young and especially if your church grows, to be filled up with pride, to be filled up with like, man, I'm pretty great. My gifts are so good. Everybody asks me for advice. Like, I'm leading this thing of God. And inevitably, when you you become filled up with pride, destruction always follows. Some sort of secret sin always follows. So the book is really sobering in itself, the content in the pages, but I'll tell you what the most sobering thing about the book is. It's not even in the book, it's on the back cover. Because on the back cover is where like well-known Christian leaders endorse books, you know, and they say like, you should read this book. I read it, it was really helpful. This book was released in 2012, so about seven years ago, and there were five well-known Christian leaders, kind of celebrity pastor types, on the back of this book. Today, three of those five are no longer in ministry because of secret sin or... They disqualified themselves some way. Three of the five people that were on the book talking about how dangerous this is, saying, yes, this was helpful, you need to do this, fell victim to the very thing that the book warned them against. See, Peter and the apostles were on a massive hilltop. Massive hilltop. And the danger of the hilltop is pride and self-sufficiency. When things are going well in our lives, we tend to forget our need for God. Right? When life is going smoothly and the sun is shining, it's easy to grow apathetic in our faith. 
And the reason is that life seems to be going so well without it. Why do I need to pray when everything's going how I want it to go? Why do I need to repent of sin when it's not really having big consequences in my life? Why do I need to press into my, my time and corporate worship when everything's going all right? We tend to look around and say, well, my circumstances are good, so all this must be fine. Things like repentance, dependency, and prayer come less naturally because it doesn't seem like we need them, which is why hills require humility. When you are on a hilltop, the thing that you need most is humility. You need to be reminded of your need of God. It would have been so easy for all of this to go to Peter's head. I mean, think about it. Months ago, no one even knew his name. And months ago, he was just some random fisherman that followed Jesus around, but nobody knew his name. But all of a sudden, everyone knew who he was. He walked around Jerusalem, and people pointed and whispered, hey, that's Peter. And it wasn't just Jerusalem. I mean, it was the suburbs, too. He couldn't go out to Rutgersville without people knowing who he was. Right? Everybody around knew who Peter was. And it wasn't just like, oh, that's Peter. He's a pretty good preacher. It was like, that's the man of God that can heal your family. I mean, Peter was on a massive pedestal in the early church, and it would have been so easy for him to be filled with pride. He was just a human person, just like everybody else, and to become the very first statistic of a young celebrity pastor who became overindulged with pride and fell. And yet what we see in this text is we see Peter fighting for humility. Where do we see that? Well, look at how he answers the council. They're basically bringing charges against him for all the amazing things that have been happening in the temple and through his ministry. And this is how he responded. I love this. God raised Jesus from the dead. God exalted Jesus as leader and savior. And God has given us the power to perform the wonders and signs that we've performed. We must obey God, not you. Peter didn't forget where he came from. Peter didn't forget, but for the grace of God, he would just be a fisherman from Galilee who was condemned in his sins. Peter remembered all the times he had failed Jesus. Peter remembered all the stupid things that he had blurted out in the Gospels. Peter remembered that he was just a sinner in need of saving grace, just like every other person. And so when the council, you know, basically accused him for his ministry, he said, look, it's not even me. It's not my ministry. God is the one doing this. I have a friend who is a pastor of a really, really large church. And um, I was talking to him one time. He said, you know, people will come up to me and they'll say, how do you stay humble when you see all that God is doing? And he said, underneath that question is an assumption that if I was seeing clearly, if I was seeing clearly everything that God was doing, then I would be filled up with pride. He said, but when people ask me that question, I say, you're asking the wrong question. He said, I don't become proud when I'm seeing clearly. He said, I become proud when I'm not seeing clearly. He said, when I see clearly, I know that it's not because of me that this church has experienced the blessing of God. It's not me that has led people to, to be saved from their sins. It's not me that's led people to go overseas or give sacrificially so that lives can be changed. He said, that's the spirit of God. He said, no amount of illustrations or sermon points is going to change people's lives like that. He said, so I'm not proud when I'm seeing clearly. He said, I'm proud when I'm not seeing clearly. See, on the hilltops, we need spiritual vision that reminds us that we didn't get up to the hilltop because of our own efforts and gifts. If you're on a hilltop, it's because the shepherd led you there. When you're on the hilltop, what you need to remember is that every blessing comes down from the Father of the heavenly lights. What you need to remember is the very breath in your lungs, the very mind that you have, your gifts at work or your ability in school or your ability to, to do ministry and invest in others, all of that is a gift of grace from your Creator. If God were to remove his blessing from you for one moment, every single one of us would crumble. 
You see, Peter remembered that. So when the council accused him and said, why are you doing this? He said, man, it's not me. It's God. What you and I need to remember on the hilltops is that we are far better off than we deserve. We are far better off than we deserve. We need to train our hearts to love God on the hilltops. And honestly, the hilltops are hard because we need to train our hearts to love God more than our promotion, to love God more than our new relationship, and to love God more than our new baby. Now, why do we need to do that? Because hilltops don't last forever. Verse 12 through 16, unfortunately, comes to an end, and verse 17 is coming. And if on the hilltop you have developed a habit of loving the gifts rather than the giver, then when you get into the valley and God removes some of his gifts, your faith is going to crumble. If your faith is built on the gifts of God but not God himself, when he removes those gifts and he walks you through a dark valley, your faith is going to crumble because it wasn't really faith in God. It was faith in what he could give you. You see, the hilltop, friends, is the very best place to prepare for the valley. In the hilltop, you have to fight and say, no, my soul magnifies the Lord. One thing have I asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. You need to fight for your heart to be like David, where he said, ah, like a a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul longs after the Lord. Do that on the hilltop. Do that on the hilltop so when you get into the valley, you are not crushed by your circumstances. Hilltops require humility. That's the first thing that we learn. Here's the second thing that we learn. Valleys require courage. Valleys require courage. The most dramatic part of this entire chapter, I think, is the heroic courage that the apostles demonstrated in the face of persecution. After the angel broke them out of prison and said, go back to the temple, they said, okay. When they were arrested and brought before men an enraged council that could, just like that, order and they would be put to death, Peter stood up, man, just right in the face, looked right in the face of the high priest and says, we're not going to obey you. You can beat us. You can take our stuff. You can put us in prison. You can kill us, but we are not going to stop preaching the gospel. We have been called by God himself to do this, and we're going to obey him rather than you. I mean, that is enormous courage. And what we learn from this text and from life is that valleys require courage. You see, hilltops don't require courage, right? When you're on a hilltop, when the sun is shining, when everything's going well, man, when, when people are, man, they're, they're praising you and you experience favor at work and all these things, like it's not hard. You don't need much character on the hilltop, right? Because it's easy. God's blessing is really evident. You're just like, man, this is great. You're just following him. Where you need character, where you need courage is in the valley. You need courage in the valley to believe that the same God who took you to the hilltop is walking with you in the valley. You need courage to believe that even if your coworkers reject you and sneer at you and marginalize you because of your faith or because you believe what the Bible teaches about any various sort of cultural issues, you need courage to believe that God is enough. That being accepted by God is more important than being accepted by your coworkers. In the valley, when you're still single for another Christmas and you long to be in a relationship, you need courage to remember that God has not abandoned you, that God has not forgotten about you. That God has not given you that longing just to, just to torment you, but that God has a plan for your life. You see, hilltops don't require much of us other than to celebrate and enjoy the sunshine, but valleys require character. Valleys require courage. Valleys require us to look in the face of our opponents and say, I'm going to obey God rather than you. Now, most of us are not going to stand before a council 
and be threatened in our lives, but we are going to face some sort of pressure, right? Maybe it's pressure to fit in from your peers. Maybe it's pressure to get that next promotion at work. Maybe it's pressure generally from culture to, man, just kind of keep your faith and keep your beliefs to yourself so you don't upset people. And we all face pressure, and in that moment, we need courage. So where do we get it? Where do we get this kind of courage? Is courage just like a character trait that some people have and other people don't? You know, like, oh, like some people are artistic, some people are are athletic, and some people are courageous, right? Is that what it is? I don't think so. I don't think it's naturally occurring at all. Here's what I think. I think courage is less of a character trait and more of a choice. I think courage is less of a character trait and more of a choice. It's not just something that you just are that way, but I think it's a choice that you make. I mean, consider Peter. Was he brave? Well, sometimes yes and sometimes no. If you know much about Peter's life, you know that sometimes he was extremely brave, like in this situation, and sometimes he was very cowardly. Was Peter brave the night that he betrayed Jesus? No. Was Peter brave in this chapter? Yes. So you might think, ah, that's the difference, the resurrection. Peter was brave from here on out. Actually not. Later on in Acts, we find that Peter stops eating with Gentile Christians because he's afraid of what his Jewish friends are going to think. That is the definition of coward. Like, ooh, I'm not going to eat with this ethnic, this, this different ethnicity because I'm afraid what my Jewish friends are going to say about me. I mean, that's like what you do in middle school, right? And yet here's Peter, apostle. You can kill me. I'm going to keep preaching the gospel. Oh, I hope they don't think, ah, what if they gossip about me? So what happened? Why was it that Peter was brave sometimes and not other times? His theology. You see, when Peter kept the gospel in mind, he was brave, and when he forgot the gospel, he was a coward. Do you wonder why he preaches the gospel in this moment? Like, what, like he's already done this once. Why do this again? He knows it's going to like, make the council really angry. Was he doing it for them? Maybe. I think he was doing it for him. I think he was bringing to mind for him and the other apostles what is true, and he's saying, look, even if you kill me, here's what I know is true. You killed Jesus, God raised him from the dead, and has exalted him to his right hand, and and we are all witnesses of that. I know that happened. And if I know that happened, even if you kill me, even if you throw me in prison, that's okay. Peter called the gospel to mind, and because of that, he was brave. So what happened later with with the Jewish Gentile thing? Well, Paul actually tells us in Galatians chapter 2, Paul wrote this. When I saw that Peter's conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I rebuked him. What happened? Peter forgot the gospel. He forgot his theology. So he started to think that what he needed most was the approval of his Jewish friends. And he's like, oh man, if I eat with these Gentiles, they're going to, oh, this this is going to get really awkward. In that moment, he forgot that the approval that he most needed, he already had in Christ. And so he thought he needed it from his Jewish friends, and so he caved and he was a coward. See, if you're in a valley right now, what you need is courage. And where courage comes from is reflecting on the gospel. You need courage to believe that God is still good, even though the last year of your life hasn't been. You need courage to believe that God can heal your marriage, even though you've given up hope. You need courage to keep pursuing God, even though you feel spiritually dry. That courage comes from remembering the gospel comes from remembering what Jesus has done. You see, on the hilltop, friends, Satan's primary weapon against us is pride. But in the valley, his primary weapon against us is despair. He whispers things like, just give up. He'll never change. You will never overcome what's happened to you. Just throw in the towel. You're too far gone. 
In those moments, you need courage to take up the shield of faith and to extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. To take your heart to task and to say, heart, this year has been hard. And I don't understand all of it. But God has said that he will never leave me nor forsake me. I don't know why I'm in this dry season. I don't know why I'm still single. I don't know why things are so hard with my family. But I know the reason cannot be that God doesn't love me or that God has forsaken me or forgotten about me. God settled his care for you on the cross 2,000 years ago. Anyone that would sacrifice their only son for you is committed to you and your well-being. And in the valley, when you don't know why these things are happening, you need to call that to mind. You need to say, I don't know why this is happening, but I know it's not because God has forsaken me. Hills require humility. Valleys require courage. Leads us to the last thing. Number three, God leads us into both. God leads us into both. It is clear throughout this text that God led the apostles to the hilltop and down into the valley. It was his power that made all the people healed and and brought all the people to faith in Christ. He gave them the hilltop. And then he told them to go back to the temple. They get arrested. Why? For doing what God told them to do, for preaching the gospel. Then he breaks them out of prison. All right, that's awesome, hilltop. Then he says, go back to the temple. So why do they get arrested the second time? Because God told them. Right? God led them up to the hilltop, and God led them down into the valleys. And that truth is affirmed all over the scriptures, particularly, I think, in Psalm 23. It's one of my favorite psalms. You maybe have never thought of it this way before. Psalm 23 begins like this, the Lord is my shepherd. So what do shepherds do? Well, they lead sheep, okay? You may know this about sheep. They're directionally challenged. It's not uncommon for a sheep to literally fall off the side of a cliff, to just be walking and fall to its demise. That's what sheep do, okay? So if a sheep gets somewhere, it's because a shepherd leads them there. So that's what shepherds do. And David says, hey, that is what God is like to us, to his people. God is our shepherd, and he leads us places. Okay, good so far. David continues, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He, makes, he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Okay, those are images of the mountaintop, right? Images of the hilltop. We're good with that. God's my shepherd. He leads me beside still waters. He leads me up to the hilltops. We're good. But it continues. David says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Valley of the shadow of death. And that's a place full of hardship and suffering and disappointment and confusion. How did I end up there? David's answer? God led you there. I mean, there's there's no way around it. If the sheep is in the valley of the shadow of death, it's because the shepherd took you there. The testament of the scriptures is that God leads you up to hills and down into valleys. He does both. And I, I find that truth, honestly, kind of challenging because valleys are full of hardship and they're full of suffering and they're full of tragedy and real deep grief. And sometimes I I just have a hard time being like, if God is loving and he's all-powerful and he's good and he could take me out of this, why is he leading me through this? Why is he leading you through this? Why not just lead us hilltop to hilltop? I'll give you the answer, and I'll admit that it's not a complete answer. It doesn't answer every question, but here's the answer. God is primarily concerned with forming your character, and there are some things you can only learn in the valley. God is primarily concerned with forming your character. And there are just some things you can only learn in the valley. There are things that you can only learn in the crucible of suffering and disappointment that you just can't learn when the sun is shining on your face. And the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 8, actually tells us that even Jesus was made perfect through suffering. But I recognize that that's not a complete answer. 
Because sometimes things happen in our lives that just don't make any sense, that are just tragic, that are horrible, that are sad, that we would never wish on someone else, that we would never do to somebody that we care about. So am I saying that God causes those things to teach us some moral lesson? Well, not exactly. There's a difference between God causing something and God allowing something. You track it with me? See, God allows choice. Human beings have choice, and sometimes human beings do things that are wicked and that hurt other people. God doesn't cause that, but God allows it to happen. The scriptures tell us that when Adam and Eve sinned, they brought destruction into the world, sickness and death and things like cancer. So God didn't create this world with cancer. God didn't cause cancer. He doesn't cause cancer in your life or in the life of one of your loved ones. But he does allow it. He allows it, and he's going to use it. He's going to walk with you through that valley so that you might be formed into the image of Jesus. And I know that if you or someone you love is walking through a really deep valley right now or has been in a really deep valley, that can sound really trite, right? Kind of inconsiderate. Like, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. And you're like, well, you obviously haven't been in my life. And even if God didn't cause your suffering, he still hasn't stopped it, right? I mean, this brings up big, hard questions about the goodness of God altogether. It requires us to trust God and his character in some really profound ways. And the question is, how do we do that? How do we trust God when we're walking through valleys? How do we trust God when our loved ones are walking through valleys? Well, I think it's the same way that the apostles did. By remembering the gospel. By remembering the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel message deals with suffering in a radically different way than any other worldview. You see, kind of traditional religious worldviews say that you get what you deserve. So if you've lived well, you'll be blessed by karma. But if you're suffering, it must be because you or someone you loved has done something wrong. Everybody gets what they deserve. That's kind of the conservative religious approach. More progressive modern worldviews, like what you have in the United States, don't have any answer for suffering. They say, look, God doesn't exist, so there's no purpose in your suffering. It's just random. And we don't, there's no greater meaning. You're just suffering. Sorry, here's a pill to help you feel better. Watch some Netflix. I mean, our modern worldview has no ability to deal with suffering. It provides no greater purpose for it. But the gospel is entirely different. You see, Christianity, doesn't just, just, Christianity says that God doesn't just allow suffering, but that God has experienced suffering. That God saw the suffering caused by sin, and he couldn't bear it. So he did something about it. He came to earth. He was born in a manger, and we call him Jesus. He was born into a poor working-class family. You see, Jesus knows what it's like to be hungry. He lost his father when he was a teenager. You see, Jesus knows what it's like to lose a loved one prematurely. He was largely misunderstood and slandered by his family. He knows what it feels like to be estranged. He was called a drunken and a drunkard and a glutton by his enemies. He knows what it's like to be gossiped about. In his most vulnerable moment, Jesus was betrayed by his friends. He knows what it's like to be abandoned. Jesus was arrested and he was condemned by an unjust court system. He knows what it's like to suffer injustice. He was whipped 39 times with a Roman cat of nine tails. He knows what it's like to experience excruciating physical pain. Jesus was hung on a Roman cross to die. He knows what it's like to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You see, Christianity is the only religion in the world that says God laid aside his power and privilege and entered into our suffering. One of my favorite books is Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. 
Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory of, of the Christian life. It's an allegory of faith. And it starts this way. Christian lives in the city of destruction, and he has this heavy burden of guilt on his back that he can't get rid of. Until one day, a character named Evangelist comes and shares the gospel with him. And Christian believes, and the, and the guilt falls off, and he starts a long pilgrimage from the city of destruction to the city of God. And along the way, it's really hard. His family doesn't understand him. They, they jeer at him. They slander him. He makes a really good friend along the way, and then his friend dies. He walks through ups and downs. He fails. He's weak. He suffers. He has, moment, he has hilltop moments, but by about three-quarters of the way through the book, you're starting to wonder, like, was this all worth it? He seems to have encountered way more valleys than he did hills in this whole pilgrimage. And you're like, what, should he have just stayed in the city of destruction? And then you get to the end of the book. You get to the outskirts of the city of God. And you realize it was all worth it. You see, Christian comes up to the outskirts of the city of God. And Bunyan, I love this, pictures this as a giant mountain city that just goes up and up into the sky until you can't, you can't see anymore. And Christian experiences beauty and majesty that he never knew existed. And he feels deep satisfaction and joy that he didn't know was possible. And he crosses over the icy river called death. And the last that we see of Christian is him running higher and higher into the city of God as trumpets blare and his angels sing. You see, friends, following Jesus does not guarantee that you will not walk through valleys, but it does guarantee that your life will end in a hilltop. Following Jesus does not mean that you will not walk through valleys, but it does mean that your story ends in the mountain city of God like Christian, being welcomed in by multitudes and multitudes of angels and festive gathering that are praising the Lamb of God and are singing hallelujah to the one who was slain. You see, Jesus left the mountaintop of heaven and he walked through the valley of the shadow of death so that you could be saved from the valley of the shadow of death and one day be welcomed into the mountaintop of heaven. So as you walk through the hills and valleys of your life, and they're coming, you're in one now, you're coming into one, call to mind what you know to be true. The same thing that David knew to be true. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you, Lord, are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. Surely, one day, surely, Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you left the mountaintop of heaven and you came into the valley of this world so that we could be delivered. So that no matter what we face, Lord, in our lives, we know that the end of our story has been written and it is a happy ending. It is an ending in a place full of joy and full of purpose and full of satisfaction, free from death, free from pain, free from cancer, free from disappointment, full of life and life eternal. Father, would you give all of us faith today, faith this week, faith as we walk through the hills and valleys to hold on to you. On on the hilltops, God, to be satisfied in you and not just the gifts that you give us and in the valleys, Lord, to trust you. That even when it's dark and even when we don't understand, that we have a Savior who walks beside us. God, we love you and we thank you for all these things in your son's name.